Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us about the wrong marriage of Esau with his taking of a wife and the dangers of being unequally yoked in marriage. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is a light to us, Lord. It's a lamp to us. And we so much treasure that lamp, that light to our path, to our feet. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to heed the light that comes from your word. Lord, to as we saw in a hymn earlier this morning, engrave it on our heart. We thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 6, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also has flesh, and his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the earth, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. Now, last week we looked again at the problem that is described in Genesis 6-2, where the sons of God made these decisions to who they would marry. And we saw that they made their decisions strictly based on the outward appearance of these women. We saw three very important words that clue us in as to that what went wrong with the decisions of who to marry. And those three important words from verse 2, that tell the whole story of what went wrong with the words saw, took, and chose. That's what went wrong in verse 2. These sons of God, they saw the beauty of these daughters of the devil, and they chose them based on that outward beauty, and they took them. And this is the great thing about the Word of God, is that it not only tells us what happened, but it tells us why things happen. Because the curse, you know, the flood causeless does not come. And so this helps us a lot in our learning because we want to learn very, very well what went wrong. And so those three words are very important. They saw, they chose, they took them. It all goes bad from there. It goes from bad to worse and finally ends in a worldwide flood. So what we gain from this as a believer is the importance on who to marry. Now, most of us don't have that decision anymore. (laughs) You know, (laughs) <laughs> this is a very bad joke. I'm sorry to tell it. But uh, one wife was yelling at her husband one time. and says, you'll be sorry. I'm going to leave you. And then he said, make up your mind. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I have to come apologize. I don't know why. All right, so now, if you turn in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it's very, very important, this verse here, 2 Corinthians 6.14, and it says here, very important, but we want to look at it again, be ye not unequally yoked, it says, 
together with unbelievers. And then it asks two questions. First question, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Second question, what communion hath light with darkness? Can you imagine two ox? You don't have ox so much here yoked together. Yoked. We don't have that going on here. We do in Ethiopia, but anyway. Can you imagine two oxen tied together and one wants to go the other way and the other, other way? I mean, that's a pretty difficult situation, right? And if you saw that, you would say to the farmer, why don't you put two oxen, same yoke, that want to go the same way? Or unyoke them or do something that's terrible. Because they have these different minds on where to go. And it's painful, it would be painful to watch something like that. And if a saved person marries a lost person, you can expect that that yoke is going to be painful as one wants to go this way and the other wants to go that way. And you picture in your mind two uh, oxen that are this way. They're miserable trying to go two different directions. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Picture one mate who wants to live in righteousness. This one mate is reading the Bible and letting the Holy Spirit, as he does, point out sinful areas in the life. And the believer is daily confessing those sins and forsaking those sins and trying to stay clean in life. And now, they're going in this direction, right? And now, they want to please God. And so now the other person just wants to enjoy life a little bit, just wants to enjoy the pleasures of unrighteousness. You know, that mate says, you know, this lifestyle is too straight. It's too narrow. And for me, this life is boring and it's uninteresting. And the lost mate says, Let's, we need a little fun in life, a little bit of fun from the risque, a little bit of spice in life, a little bit of naughtiness in life. That makes life interesting. And so, you know, you have the one this way, the other that way. You know, it's miserable. And the only about the only thing that's happening here is they're both getting their very sore necks <laughs> and frustrated. And one of the two mates is going to give in. One of the two mates is going to get in because that's a life of misery being unequally yoked. Or this the scene of two unequally yoked, as Paul says in the verse, what communion hath light with darkness? So picture one mate wants light from reading the Bible, from getting together with believers and talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, from coming to church. And so he's going this way. And the other mate sees it as just a suffocating life. It's just, it's just painfully enduring. It's like being in having a root canal done with no Novocaine. It's white knuckle all the way. Ever seen anybody church like that? Let me look around. No. Anyway, in fact, the other way just would rather read, just watch movies instead of read the Bible. How boring. Or meet with friends and talk about anything but religion. See, back and forth, back and forth, sore necks, frustrating. One of the two is going to get it. What's the essential problem? The essential problem we've seen before is in Amos 3.3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Very good for the... uh, I'm sure that Paul had this in mind when he used this example. Well, the only thing is is that he's calling us ox. But apart from that, he says, "Can can two ox go together except they believe? Can two walk together? No, no. Now, so what we saw last week was how Abraham was so concerned for, the, for his son Isaac that he get the right wife. 
And so even though he was so weak, well-stricken in age, as we saw, and he had to rely on Eliezer, nevertheless, it was really Abraham in the plate. Eliezer was going in the stead of Abraham to go get the right, choose the wife for Isaac. You know, it sounds a little bit, I don't know. I don't know how it sounds to you. You know, there's poor Isaac. You know, he's out there in the field minding his own business. And uh, all of a sudden, he is presented with, this is your wife, you know. Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I met a man last week, Wesley, uh, over your house, Tim, from India, who's both a pastor and a professor of astrophysics at UCSD. Not exactly backwards, but anyway, he, he's a debater of Richard Dawkins. He's debated Richard Dawkins. And he told me that in India, his family chose his wife for him in India. And then they presented the woman that they had. He never met her before. And they said, you know, this is the one we've chosen to be your wife. And so, fortunately, they said before they got married that they liked each other. And that's a good thing. <laughs> but it, maybe, I don't know if that was important or not to them. But anyway, so what is the benefit of Abraham choose, through Eliezer choosing the wife for Isaac or Wesley's family choosing the wife for Wesley? Well, their choices in either case, was not based on outward appearances, but on what we talked about before, the inward qualities and whether or not they would be of the same spiritual family, spiritual kin to each other. I remember one night we were having dinner, we had friends over, and one of our sons said in this uh, setting, he made this announcement, that he would not marry anyone that we did not approve of. I just about fell on the floor when he said that. I didn't know that. And I thought to myself, well, that's not exactly the way it was when I got married. My father wanted me to marry Harriet Steinbaum. She was the daughter of the president of the synagogue. That was before. Anyway, but every day I thank God for giving me a wife that has not only moral character, but also that we're, on the same, that we're in the same family, same spiritual kin. That's important. If you're a believer and you have a believing mate, you should thank God every day for her or him. And if you don't have a mate, don't make the mistake of these sons of God who married the daughters of the devil. So you look at what Abraham, look at, look at uh, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 25, verse 20. It's interesting. When did Abraham choose Isaac's wife? What we learn in this verse from Genesis 25, 20, he didn't choose a wife for him when he was six years old. And say, now you just wait a little bit till you get married. This is when you're going to marry. It says here in Genesis 25, 20, and Isaac was 40 years old. They got married a little bit later those days. They lived longer also, but anyway. Isaac was 40, but not as old as you, Ed. Where is Ed? He's over there. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, okay, we better stop that. All right, so Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. You know, Isaac was in the house there, and he submitted to this decision by his father, Abraham, as to who he was going to marry. And he was 40 years old. He wasn't a youngster. He was able to make his own decision. He was 40 years old. Well, Abraham was not the only one that was in the seed of God, in the family of God, who was concerned over a wrong marriage for his son. And it's interesting, and you turn to the son of Isaac, 
and turn now to Genesis 26, 34 to 35. And here we have the son of the one that we're talking about, Esau. And what's interesting in this verse is he's the same age as Isaac was. It says, and Esau was 40 years old. So he's the same age as his father was when he got married, 40. But this doesn't say that, that, he wanted, that he relied on his father Isaac to help him out with the decision as to who to marry. Doesn't say help anybody help him out who's to marry. It just says when he was 40 years old, he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, and Bashemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. He, this is, see, see the difference here? This, he's, he's, he's acting like the sons of God who just took without any counsel from anyone else. And it says in verse 35 that this was a grief of mind to um, Isaac, unto Isaac and to Rebekah. He was 40 years old, same age as Isaac. What a difference between these two. Now, this was such an issue for Isaac and Rebekah, they never got over it for their whole lives. It was a grief. It was a, a mara. It was a bitterness inside of them. It was like the name of that place when the children of Israel came to those waters that were polluted and they were bitter and they couldn't drink them. He said, every time we remember this, Isaac and Rebekah could say, it's bitterness inside of us, like those poisoned waters. Terrible. In fact, this was such a bitterness of mind to them that that's what Rebekah used as an argument uh, to Isaac to send Jacob away. Look at Genesis 27, 46. 27, 46. Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life. That bitterness had really worn on her because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? See? There's really a bitterness to her. Really, really wait. And the send him away. So they send him away. Of course, it also it might have something to do with the fact that his brother was trying to kill him, the mother was trying to save him. But apart from that, it's still a bitterness to his wife. Tom, today you talked about how concerned Rebecca was that her son Isaac have a good marriage. I think we can all identify with Rebecca's concern as we see some of the marriages in our world today go well and others need help. How does the Bible help us to have a good marriage in this day and age? You know, this is a very, very important question. And we need to really look to the Bible, look to God, to see what does God say about helping us to have a good a good marriage. And fortunately, God has provided for us some wonderful examples to show the dynamic, uh, the dynamic aspect of the relationship between a man and wife. And I think especially of Abraham and Sarah. It's a beautiful relationship that they had together. But you know, when you look at Genesis 22, you find that there was a time in Abraham's life when it was spoken of as God tempting Abraham. And it says in, in Genesis 22.1 that, that God said to Abraham, so he called to him, Behold, here I am. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And then it says, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for a burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which... God had told him. 
You know, this, this is very interesting because here was God speaking directly to Abraham and that he should sacrifice his son. Well, you know, you could look at Sarah and she would say, what am I, chop liver? I mean, I don't have any interest. This is my son too. But yet God spoke to Abraham alone. And as a matter of fact, there's one place where it actually talks about uh, when God called Abraham and, and God said, I called Abraham alone. And so Abraham had this life with God that went beyond any human relationship. And he obeyed God, and he didn't go and discuss this with Sarah. I mean, he didn't wake up in the morning and say, uh, Hi, honey, I just want you to know that last night God told me to go sacrifice our son, so I'll be away for a little while. This was not the case at all. He went alone to obey God. But, you know, the picture that we have between Abraham and Sarah is a beautiful picture of a dynamic relationship, one in which Peter calls out, how magnificent Sarah was in her relationship to Abraham and how much Abraham loved Sarah. They both loved each other very much. When Sarah died, it's spoken about in Genesis how long Abraham took in mourning for her, and and she was the love of his life, and vice versa. But in 1 Peter 3, 6, Peter calls Sarah out as an example to us and says, Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So what Peter is saying here is that, first of all, Sarah honored the relationship that Abraham was was the head of the house, and she also was not afraid. And there were things that Abraham did that would have made any person afraid, like uh, like when Abraham said to her, now you just tell everybody that you're my sister so that, you, so, that, so that I won't be killed. And of course, we know what happened as a result of that. She was an absolutely stunningly drop-dead gorgeous woman, Sarah was. And so both the cases where that happened, she was taken into another man's house and was slated to become part of the harem. So if there was any opportunity for anybody, for a woman to become terrified, it would have been Sarah at Abraham's suggestion. But she did it, and it says she was not afraid with any amazement. Now the question on the table is, how could she not be afraid when she was put in such a dangerous position? She was not afraid because she saw beyond Abraham, and she, she may have called him Lord, little, little L, Lord, but she called the Lord, Adonai, Jehovah, Jehovah Jesus. She called him capital L, Lord. And so because her faith and trust was in him, therefore, she knew that God was in control, that all, she knew Romans 8, 28, even though it hadn't been written yet, that all things God was like wonderfully weaving them all together so that they worked together into a beautiful picture that God was doing, even using the weakness and the frailty and the fear that Abraham had and how he was involving Sarah. She was not afraid with any amazement. We take off our hat to Sarah. We say, oh, to be like Sarah that can be put in these kind of situations that Abraham put her in and not be afraid because she trusted in God. Then in 1 Peter, it turns to the husbands in verse 7, and it says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them. Dwell with your wives. You know what that, you know what that means? That means husbands, unpack. 
husbands, you've got your suitcases. Don't keep them at the door with the, with the idea that, that I can walk out of here at unwa- any one moment. You unpack. You take those suitcases. You unpack and dwell with them. There is no leaving. There is only cleaving. There is no forsaking. There is only staying with. There is no divorce. That's only for better, for worse. And once that's a mentality, that's a that's a, a state of mind that we dwell with them. It means I'm here to live with you. I will dwell with you. And then it says, according to knowledge, according to knowledge, according to understanding, husbands, we don't expect more from our wives than we have the knowledge that they can give. They are who they are, and we know who they are. We understand their strengths, we understand their weaknesses, and we keep that always in our knowledge, and we dwell with them according to knowledge. If there's something that irritates our wives, even if it's a weakness that shouldn't irritate our wives, we don't do it because we're dwelling with them according to the knowledge that that irritates them. If there's something that makes them happy, even though we say, oh, that's nothing, why should we do it? Why? Because we're dwelling with them according to the knowledge that that makes them happy. And then it says, giving honor unto the wife. We as husbands, we honor that precious jewel that God has given to us. We honor it. And we say, we say to ourselves, our wives are precious to us. They're very valuable there's something to be cherished. I love the fact that my wife's name is Cheryl because it, to me it sounds like cherish. And it brings back this thought of giving honor, of cherishing the wife, giving honor to her, giving to honor to her because that's the person. God said in the beginning, he made them male and female. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 18. He made them male and female. That means he made that wife for you, husband. He made that husband for you, wife. He made that person. That person is a gift from God. So we give honor as husbands. We give honor unto the wife as the gift from God, as the one who God says, perfect for you, just right. And we give honor to her for that reason, among others. And then it says, giving honor to her is unto the weaker vessel. We understand her weaknesses, and we, we protect those weaknesses. We defend her. We shelter her. That's what God says. And then it says, you give honor as being heirs together. And those words are so important. Together. Heirs together of the grace of life. This means that God has said, I am going to deal with you separately, but I'm going to deal with you in a together as well. Together, I'm going to give you the graces, the grace for life, the grace in this area of your life, the grace in that area of your life, the grace for this situation that you're facing together. And there is this sense in which God does this and, and when he blesses us as man and wife, there is the sense that he's blessing us together. And it, this is a great word, together. In the Hebrew, it's the word echad. It's the word that is describing God from the Shema when he says, the Lord our God is one, one Lord. That's the word one. And in Psalm, he said, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
You know, what is it? And so God looks on a marriage, and when he sees a husband and wife who are dwelling together, he says, this is good. This is pleasant. It's pleasant for them, and it's pleasant for me to see as well. And then he says, that your prayers be not hindered. Honor your wife by praying together with her. Honor your husband by praying together because God expects that and wants that because he loves to answer the prayers that are done together as a husband and wife. This is part of what it means to be an heir together of the grace of God. The grace of God comes to us as answers to prayer, prayers that we pray together. And that's part of what it means to be heirs together in the grace of God. So Sarah and Abraham were the examples of this. And when you look at the lives of Sarah and Abraham, you can see, you, you first of all, you look at their lives and you go, oi, what a lot of trouble they had. Unbelievable, one thing after another. But what a great God they had. And that's where they rejoice together in what God has done for them. Thank you for joining us today. Now, as we come closer to Passover, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we're offering Tom Cantor's DVD, The Personal Relevance of the Passover, from Isaiah 53 and Exodus 12. This is a great scriptural study on God's sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Messiah. This is a great video and will reveal the truth of the Messiah to a lost Jewish person or a Gentile. This will help you to know your scriptures better. So call us today for this two-disc DVD set of Tom Cantor. He's a great video teacher. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Get your copy of The Personal Relevance of the Passover as shown in Isaiah 53 and Exodus 12 by Tom Cantor. Or call us today to witness to a Jewish person with Tom Cantor's DVD. We'll give it to you free. Tom Cantor's DVD testimony free to a Jewish person that's lost. 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org.